I want to welcome you tonight. Our topic is the United States in Bible prophecy. We've got a lot to talk about tonight, so let's go straight to the Word of God. Open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13. And let's begin with a word of prayer. Loving Father, we have opened up the Word of Life because in there we find truth. In there we find You. And Lord, we are seeking truth when it comes to this topic of the USA in Bible prophecy. And Lord, we know that You desire for us to understand this because You've placed it there so that we can. But we also know that the devil is trying to do everything to deceive us and pull us away. And so we're praying that the Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts. We're praying that the holy angels are here to help us. And we pray that if there are any evil angels or unholy spirits that are here that, Lord, You would have Your holy angels escort them off the property. They are not welcome here, and in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, we command that they would leave, because spiritual things are spiritually discerned, and, Lord, we don't want them trying to bring confusion and error into a otherwise very simple and very clear topic. And so, Lord, we're praying that You will speak to our hearts, give us the wisdom we need, and show us what You would have us do. And we pray and ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. In Revelation chapter 13, you have two beasts. We've already talked about the first beast, but I thought that we would just do a quick review of that first beast. You'll remember that, and you can look at it here in John 13 verse 1, that John sees a beast coming up out of the sea. And you'll remember, we've already talked about this, that a beast in Bible prophecy represents a king, a kingdom, a nation, a power, whether that is a political or a spiritual power. That's what a beast represents. We've also seen that in Revelation 17, verse 15, it shows us that water represents a richly, densely populated area. And so if you have got a nation coming up in an already populated area, what you're seeing is one nation conquering another nation. And that's what we see here with this beast coming up out of the sea. And you'll notice that that beast has some remnants of the nations that it conquered. And we already talked about how John is looking back through history and he's seeing that fourth beast which represents pagan and Christian Rome and he's seeing parts of the previous kingdoms that were conquered. We see that it has parts of a leopard and a bear and a lion. And if you go back to Daniel chapter 7, you see that Daniel was looking at that out in the future and he was seeing them in the opposite order. He was seeing the lion, the bear, the leopard, and then that dreadful great beast. And so here we see that This is talking about pagan and Christian Rome, and it has remnants of Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece that are there within that. 
And then we also see there in Revelation 13 verse 2 that the dragon gives him his power, his seat, and great authority. And we've talked already about that representing Satan. That's the dragon. That's ultimately who it represents. But we've also seen how the devil always works through human instrumentalities. And so it may be that the dragon may be representing those human instrumentalities that he's worked through. For example, we have already talked about how he worked through Herod to try and kill Jesus, right? And so that's pagan Rome, and he's giving his power and his seat and his great authority to Christian Rome. If you read Revelation 13, verse 3 through 5, you also see that this beast, this kingdom, this power was given authority over the earth for 42 months. And we already talked about that time frame. We already saw that in the Bible calendar, there are 30 days in a month. And we went back and we looked at the story of Noah to see that. So you have 42 months with 30 days in a month. That's 1,260 days. And then we also saw that in Bible prophecy, a day equals a year. And so that's talking about 1,260 years. Then you go to Revelation 13, verse 5 and 6, and it talks about this beast being a blaspheming power. And we saw the two biblical definitions of blasphemy. That's claiming to be God or have the prerogatives of God and being able to forgive sins. We see in verse 7 that this power would be a persecuting power, and that's persecuting God's church, God's people, You go to verse 8 and it talks about how the whole world is going to worship the beast. And we're going to talk about that tonight. Then you go to verse 9 and 10 and you see that this first beast receives a deadly wound or a mortal wound. And then that wound is going to be healed. And we looked at all of those clues and we saw that this was talking about none other than papal Rome, the church in Rome. And we talked about how that deadly wound happened after that 1260 year period in 1798 that Napoleon sent Berthier, his general, in to take the Pope captive. And if you look through the historical documents, you will see that papal Rome at that time, for all intents and purposes, was dead. Not that they lost their ecclesiastical power. The Pope still had control over the church. They still were a church, but they lost their political power when the Pope was taken captive. It received that mortal wound in 1798. Now I want to show you something we haven't talked about yet. Look in verse 10. Revelation 13 verse 10 It says, he who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. So here we see the papacy receiving that mortal wound. They had all of this false doctrine, all of this pagan doctrine that had slipped into the church and they were teaching error. And anyone who didn't believe what the state church said they had to believe was taken captive and most of them were killed for their faith. The uh, conservative estimates are that in the dark ages, about 50 million people lost their life because 
of this persecuting power. Now, then it says that he who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Now, we could look at that in a physical way because they were using the sword to kill God's people. But the Pope was never killed with a sword. So this is not talking about a physical sword. This is talking about a spiritual sword. And the Word of God is referred to as the sword of the Spirit, right? And so here we have talking about a spiritual sword. And so you have all of this error, all of this doctrine, all of this old wine that is being taught and if you didn't believe it you were killed because of that right but now you have in 1798 gutenberg invents the printing press the bible is being printed in all the languages of the world the people are reading the bible for themselves and now it's the truth it's the new wine it's the word of god it's the sword of the spirit that is putting an end if you will or putting a deadly wound on the papacy. And so it's talking about that spiritually. But then I want you to notice in verse 11 that John says, and I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. I want to just read that with you. So let's take a look at it. Revelation 13, verse 11. John says, Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke like a dragon. And he exercises all of the authority of the first beast, that's the papacy, in his presence, and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast, that's the papacy, whose deadly wound was healed. He, that is the second beast, performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he, that's the second beast, deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast. That's the first beast. That's the papacy. Telling those who dwell on the earth to do what? Make an image to the beast. That's the first beast. That's papacy who was wounded by the sword and lived. Now, this is very interesting, and I want to make a comparison here. Because we looked at that first beast in Revelation 13, 1, and it said that that beast came up out of the sea. Okay? And the sea, or the water, represents a populated area. Right? But now this second beast... In verse 11, he comes up out of where? Out of the earth, right? So if the sea or the water represents a densely, richly populated area, then the earth is the opposite of that. This represents a sparsely populated or an unpopulated area, right? And so that's our first clue that we see that this power is going to come up out of an unpopulated area. You remember me saying to you that in Bible prophecy, I think it was in question and answer time, how do we understand prophecy? And I said not all things are chronological. You remember me saying that? We have to use the pan and zoom principle. Well, When I said not all things are 
continuous or are not one flowing after the other. In this case, they are. So when we see John sees this first beast receive a deadly wound in 1798, then he sees immediately he sees this second beast coming up. What we're seeing is this second beast is rising up at about the same time that the first beast is going into captivity. At about the same time that the first beast is receiving the deadly wound, this second beast is coming up out of the earth. So it's coming up out of an unpopulated area, and it's coming up roughly at about the same time, 1798. Now, there's something significant here, too, that I want you to notice. Something that's missing. You know, sometimes that's the hardest thing to pick out, right? Is something that's missing. Because I want you to look at this beast, Revelation 13, verse 11. It talks about this beast that comes up out of the earth, and it says that he has two horns like a lamb, but he speaks like a dragon. Right? Now, what's missing there? Well, we might not catch it at first, but if we go back to Revelation 13, 1 and 2, and we look at the first beast, we see that this beast came up out of the sea, but it had seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns were what? Crowns. That's right. If you go back to Revelation chapter 12 and you look at the dragon, the dragon had seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns were crowns. Right? But now we get to this second beast of Revelation 13, and it has two horns, but there's no crowns. Right? That's significant because crowns represent a monarchy. Right? Crowns represent kingly authority, whether it's a king in the place of a political power or whether it's the pope in the case of an ecclesiastical or a religious power. There's no crowns on the horns of this second beast. I want you to notice too that it says that he comes up out of the earth and he has two horns like a lamb. Now in Bible prophecy, what does a lamb represent? Jesus Christ, that's right. And so here we have a nation, which is represented by this beast, a power that comes up lamb-like, peace-like, Christ-like, Christian-like, This is a nation that's coming up out of an unpopulated area around 1798 and it has a Christ-like division of power. There are no crowns of authority on this beast. And I want you to notice too, look at verse 12. Revelation 13 verse 12, it says that he exercises all authority of the first beast in his presence and he causes the earth and those who dwell in the earth to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. So now we're seeing another clue as to who this power is. Rose around 1798, rises up in an unpopulated area 
has a Christ-like division of power, but this is a power that has an incredible amount of influence in the world. Did you see that? Because He causes the whole world to worship the beast. Right? And so this is a worldwide power that has worldwide influence that is causing everyone to worship the beast. Now, I want to give you one more clue, so turn with me to Revelation 19. Revelation 19, and I want you to look with me at verse 20. It says, the beast, that's the first beast, was captured, and with him who? The false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Now, we just saw back in Revelation 13 that it's the second beast that causes everyone to worship the image, right? So here we're seeing yet another clue, and that is that this second beast is also referred to as the false prophet. Okay? So let's take a look at this. We have a power that that comes up around 1798, rises up in a relatively unpopulated area, so it's not conquering another nation, It has a Christ-like division of power. It has two horns, but there's no crowns. And so here we have a government without a king, and we have a church without a pope, right? And so we have a government that is by the people and for the people, Right? It grows to a position of universal power and influence, and it's also known as the false prophet. And there is only one nation in the world that fits that description, and that's the United States of America. Now, let me just say that in verse 11, it says, Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, right? If you go back to the original Greek manuscript and you read that where it says coming up, that word that's translated into English coming up is the Greek word anabino. Anabino. And that word means to ascend or to rise or to grow up or spring up. In other words, this is not immediately a world power, but rather this is a nation that grows in and grows up to become a world power. Okay? So, I want you to think about that. And it's very interesting too. You go to Matthew chapter 13, verse 7, and you see Jesus talking about these thorns that came up. It's using that same word, anabino there. You know, when a weed... When a a thorn, it doesn't just overnight become this big weed, right? It has to grow up. It has to slowly, eventually become this weed. And as it grows bigger and bigger, it crowds out all of the other plants, right? And so that's what we're seeing 
in this nation. That's exactly what we should expect to see. I want you to notice what it says in a book called The New World Compared with the Old by G.A. Townsend, page 635. He's talking about America. He's talking about this nation. He says, The mystery of her coming forth from vacancy, like a silent seed, we grew into an empire. That's exactly what happened to America, didn't it? It wasn't immediately a superpower. It took time and it grew up into that position. Now, I want you to think about this because I've given this a lot of thought. When we look at Bible prophecy and we see all of these world-ruling empires, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, if we're seeing world-ruling empires in Bible prophecy, don't you think that we should expect to see the only world superpower at the end of time? Do you think we should see it in Bible prophecy? I would expect that we would, right? And sure enough, here we are seeing the United States of America. Now, I want to show you this from a little bit different perspective. So go back to Revelation 12, and I want to show you this from yet a different angle. I want you to notice Revelation 12. Notice what it says in verse 13. The Bible says, Now when the dragon, that's Satan, saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman. Now, what's a woman represent in Bible prophecy? A church, right? Whether it's a true church or apostate church, talking about the church, okay? Who gave birth to the male child. Now, this is talking about the true church, right? And you can go back to Revelation 12, verse 3 and 4, and you can see that story there. We've already talked about who this male child is that was going to rule the world with a rod of iron and was going to be caught up to heaven. We know that that was talking about Jesus, right? And so here we see that the dragon, yeah, that ultimately represents Satan, but Satan doesn't work out in the open. He always works through deception, and he always works through human instrumentalities. And so here he sees that he can't, kill the child he tried to kill jesus he thought he had won the victory when christ was on the cross right but he couldn't kill christ he rose from the dead so now what does he do he goes after his church and so now he's trying to persecute god's people but look at verse 14 but the woman that's the church was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the what into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time, times and a half a time from the presence of the serpent. Now we already talked about that time, times and a half a time. That's the same prophetic time period as that 1,260 days, right? Which is 1,260 literal years. And so here we see the same thing happening, but yet from a different angle, here we see that the dragon is persecuting God's church. So now you have the dragon, which represents pagan Rome, giving his power and his seat and authority to papal Rome, And the dragon is working through both pagan and papal Rome to persecute God's people. And so now God's true church, 
leaves the apostate church, and now they're fleeing. Now the church is going into hiding. Right? That's what we see happening here. Now, look at verse 15. Verse 15 says, So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. Now, we already know that water represents a lot of people, right? So when the devil spews water out of his mouth, this is where we see papal Rome sending out their armies to capture God's people and uh, punish them as heretics. And so he's spewing this army out that's going to try and capture God's people. But notice what happens. Look at verse 16. It says, But the earth helped the woman. And so the question is, how did the earth help the woman? It says it's opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood, which the dragon had spewed out of its mouth. So what we're seeing here is that the Roman papacy is sending out their armies to capture God's people, and God's people are fleeing. Right? And you can go back and you can look at history and you can see how the Waldensians uh, ran and hid in the Swiss Alps and, and many other people that were trying to get away from that persecution. But what that also led to was the earth opening up and allowing God's people to get away. So here we see people leaving the old world And the earth, an unpopulated area, here we see people coming to America to escape persecution. And that's exactly what prophecy is revealing. Our forefathers landed at Plymouth, Massachusetts on December 26, 1620. And our forefathers of this country drafted the Declaration of Independence and they said, essentially, we're not going to allow this to happen here. And we're going to found this country on the separation of church and state. Because the problem was that the church and the state had united and they were persecuting God's people. And so they were coming to this country to escape persecution and to come here for religious freedom. They did not come to this world to repeat the same mistake as it was in the old world. And so they established this country on the principles of separation of church and state. And they began that with the Declaration of Independence, which starts off with the preamble, we know these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's what this country was founded on. And then what followed was in 1789, they drafted the Constitution 
And then in 1791, you have the Bill of Rights. So remember that the papacy was taken into captivity in 1798. Now 1791, we're getting close to that time period, right? And so now, by 1791... Now you have the United States starting to be recognized as a sovereign nation. Right? And so just at the time when the first beast was going into captivity, you have the rise of this second beast known as the false prophet. So then in 1791, they make the first amendment to the Constitution. And what did that amendment say? Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or of the right of the people to assemble peacefully. That's the First Amendment. Now, why do you think that they put that amendment in there? Because they had already seen what happens when the church and state are united. You see, the problem that most people have today is we don't understand our history. Because most people say today that the reason there's a separation of church and state is so that the state doesn't tell the church how to function or what to do. But you go back and you look at the history and you realize the reason that they founded it on a separation of church and state is because every time you have church and state united, you always have the church telling the state what to do. You always have the church telling the state what you should believe and then they expect the state to enforce it. That's why when you go to Revelation chapter 17 and you see this harlot woman, which represents an apostate church, sitting on a beast, which represents civil government, a nation, who's controlling who? If you were sitting on a horse, who's in charge? You or the horse? Well, it depends, right? If you're me, it might be the horse that's in charge. But the idea of the symbology is that it's the one on top who is the one in control, right? And so what we have is the church controlling the state. And so that's what they were trying to get away from. They have this separation that they set up on purpose so that you couldn't have the church telling the state what to do. I want you to notice what George Washington, the first president of the United States, once said. He said, Every man conducting himself as a good citizen, being accountable to God for his religious opinions, ought to be protected in worshiping the deity according to the dictates of his good conscience. What's Washington saying? He's saying the government should stay out of your business. The government should not be the one telling you what you have to believe, right? Every person should have the freedom to believe whatever they want to. That's what Washington is saying there, right? Now, I want to show you something very familiar to that. And maybe 
where he got that from. Turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. Hold your place here in Revelation. We're coming back. Mark 12, that's going to be page 1168. And I want to just read to you a story that you're very familiar with. Mark chapter 12. And look with me. That's page 1168. Notice what it says starting in verse 13. The Bible says, Then they sent to him some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his words. When they had come, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and care about no one, for you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why do you test me? Bring me a denarius that I may see it. And so they brought it. And he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus answered and said to them, Render to Caesar the thing that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. George Washington was essentially saying the exact same thing that Jesus said. He said, you give to Caesar those things that belong to him. It's okay for the government to set up civil laws and, and, and boundaries so that uh, you can't infringe on someone else's civil rights or their property, right? And so no matter how bizarre or how different your religion is, as long as you're not interfering with someone else's civil rights or doing something to their property, you should have the right to believe whatever you want to believe. Right? The government has no say in that. But we know that we're going to be held accountable for our religious beliefs, aren't we? We're going to be held accountable by God. But we should not be held accountable by the government. That's what Jesus is saying here. And it's essentially the same thing that George Washington said. So, if your religious practices, as long as they are not violating anyone's property or person, you can believe whatever you want to believe. Look, if we're going to reach people with the Gospel, we have to give them the right to believe whatever they want to believe. Right? That's what this government of ours is founded upon. I want you to notice something Benjamin Franklin said once. I really like this one. He says, when a religion is good, I conceive that it will support itself. And when it does not support itself, and God does not take care to support it, so that its professors are obliged to call for the help of the civil power, Tis a sign, I apprehend, of its being a bad one. What Franklin is saying here is if your religion is void of the power of God, and the only way that you can get people to follow your religion is to go to the civil government to get them to force you to follow it, then it's a sign of it being a bad religion. Right? That's what he's saying there. We need to remember that the kingdom of God never forces. God doesn't force anyone to believe in Him. He doesn't force anyone to follow Him. He doesn't force anyone to 
keep all of His commandments in the way that He told us to do it. Right? He gives us all the freedom of choice. It is only Satan who does things by force. And that's what we see in that 1260 year of papal reign of terror, forcing people in what they were supposed to believe, right? And if you don't believe what we tell you to believe, then we are going to punish you as heretics. And so that's what it was like in the old world, right? But now they come here, and that was called heresy, by the way. If you didn't believe what the church state told you you had to believe, you were a heretic. And now they've come to the new world, and now they're saying, we're not going to allow that to happen here. But I want you to notice that the Bible says in Revelation 13, 11, that we're talking about this second beast. It says that it's a lamb-like beast with two horns. And if it stopped right there, that would be wonderful. But it doesn't stop there. The prophecy says, but he will speak like a dragon. Right? So this country, which was built on Christianity, which was built on a separation of church and state, it says that it's going to start speaking like a dragon. It says that in verse 11. Now let me ask you a question. How does a nation speak? Well, let me tell you how a nation does not speak. It does not speak through the president getting on national TV and saying, this is what I want you to do. Because people would just go, maybe. I might do what he says. I might not, right? But how does a nation speak? It speaks through its legislation, right? The very fact that a nation has power and authority to create laws and enforce them. That's how a nation speaks, right? I want you to think about this for a minute. We're talking about the second beast. And whose authority does it say that he exercises? He exercises the authority of the first beast, Papal Rome. And where did Papal Rome get its authority? From the dragon, right? And so here we see how the United States of America, the second beast, also known as the false prophet, is going to start speaking like a dragon. It speaks through legislation. And so here we see the United States of America is going to get to a place where it starts legislating what you should believe. What day you should corporately worship God on. Right? Remember what we read. What does this second beast do? He causes all to worship the first beast. And how does he do it? By setting up an image to the beast. What's an image? An image is a likeness, right? So if the second beast, the United States of America, is going to set up an image to the first beast, which was a union of church and state, That's exactly what we should expect to see here in the United States. Setting up an image to that beast. 
Revelation 13 verse 15 says, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast, right? That's what this second beast is going to do. He's going to set up an image to the first beast. And the first beast was this union of church and state. And notice what it says. It says that uh, it's set up to that first beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. But then it goes on to say that those who don't can't buy or sell, right? You go to verse 16, and that's what it says. They have to receive the mark of the beast or they can't buy or sell. So now we see this second beast, the United States of America, setting up an economic sanction that if you don't do what they say, that's the image of the beast, right? You have to believe what we tell you to believe. You have to do it the way we say to do it or you're not going to be able to buy or sell. And so they're going to set up this economic sanction and they're going to try and force its people to take that mark of the beast. And so I would say to you, friends, the separation and the wall of separation between church and state is coming down. And I believe that's exactly what this prophecy is talking about. Now, some of you might say, that's not true. That's impossible. That's against the Constitution of the United States, right? Well, I want to show you a few things to show you how things are changing in this country. Now, right now, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States is John Roberts. But before him, the chief justice was William Rehnquist. This is the chief justice. He is the highest justice in the highest court of the land. The court that's supposed to defend the Constitution of the United States. Notice what he said before he died. He said, the wall of separation between church and state is a metaphor based on bad history. That's what he said. It should be frankly and explicitly abandoned. That's where we're headed, friends. That's where the Supreme Court of the United States of America is leading us. They're supposed to defend the Constitution, but here he's saying that idea of church and state, which by the way, you won't see those words, separation of church and state, you won't see that in the Constitution. Just like you don't see... The rapture in the Bible, right? But it's there. And the same thing is true of this idea of separation of church and state. It doesn't specifically call it that, but the whole principle is there. And he's saying that should be done away with. This country of ours is changing. I want, to know, I want you to notice something that Jerry Falwell once said. If you recognize that name, he was a very famous, very influential pastor in this country. And in 1980, he began the Moral Majority newspaper. He was the founder of that. And notice what he said in August of 1980. He said, the phrase separation of church and state is not found in the Constitution. I'm going to pause there for a moment. He's absolutely right. That phrase is not there. But the principal idea of it is. But then notice what he says. 
And the misuse of the phrase leads to all sorts of trouble. I'm going to stop there. Because he's absolutely right. The misuse of that phrase is what gets us in trouble. And now let me show you what else he says and how he misuses it. He says, such as trying to keep godly principles out of legislation. The free exercise clause means that the government is powerless to be involved. You see what he's saying here? He's saying the whole idea behind the separation of church and state is so that the government doesn't tell the church what to do. He's misquoting. He's misusing it. He doesn't understand history. And then he goes on to say, in the regulation of belief or church activities, it does not mean that our beliefs cannot be legislated. Wipe the phrase separation of church and state out of your vocabulary. What is he saying? He's saying that as a Christian nation, we should be telling the legislature what to do. The church should be the one that's doing exactly what happened in the dark ages. Now, remember in Revelation 17, the harlot and the beast, right? And who was riding on who? You had the apostate church riding on the government and telling the government what to do. And you know, this is nothing new, right? The exact same thing happened in Jesus' day. The Pharisees wanted to do away with Him. But their law said the only way they could do it was to stone somebody. But that wasn't good enough for them. They wanted Him crucified. They wanted Him punished, right? So what did they do? They went to the state. They went to Herod and Pilate and they said, we want Him crucified. That's what happens every time you put church and state together. You always have the church telling the state what to do. Now, let me tell you what's going on here in America. We have many people in America, good, honest, God-fearing Christians, who, who look at the morality and how it's declining in the Western society, and they believe the reason that it's doing that is because Christians have not asserted their beliefs enough into the political agenda. And they're saying we need to get involved and we need to make legislation so that we can bring back morality in this country. Let me show you this. I want you to notice something that it said in Liberty Magazine in the May-June issue of 1980 on page 4. It said, if Christians unite, we can do anything. We can pass any law or any amendment and that's exactly what we intend to do. You see, these are good, honest Christians who believe the right thing to do is to get involved in politics and to make laws that protect what we believe, right? I can understand why they're wanting to do that, but unwittingly they're falling right into the deception of the beast and and the false prophet And that's where they're leading them to. You ever heard of the Christian Coalition? I want to read to you something that I took right off of their website. Notice what they say. 
The Christian coalition offers people of faith the vehicle to be actively involved in impacting impacting the issues they care about from the county courthouse to the halls of Congress. The coalition is a political organization made up of pro-family Americans who care deeply about ensuring government serves to strengthen and preserve rather than to threaten our families and our values. To that end, we work continuously to identify, educate, and mobilize Christians for effective political action. Now, these are... God-fearing Christians who say, we want you to legislate our beliefs, right? And notice what it said there. It said, here is this body of, of people who see the moral decline in America and they want to mobilize Christians for effective what? Preaching of the gospel? No. For effective political action right that's what they're saying there right we want to get more christians involved in politics telling your legislators what you think they should do so let me ask you a question do you think that rome was corrupt in the days of jesus absolutely it was corrupt right But what was Jesus' answer to that corruption? Was it to go and form a picket line at the courthouse? Was it to go to Herod and say, you need to change your ways? Was it to get all of the people in this grassroots movement to go and tell the government they needed to change? No, Jesus' answer to corruption in the world was to reach the heart of each person One person at a time. That's what He did, right? And so if you want to change the problem in America, you've got to change the heart of every person. And you're not going to do that through legislation. You can never force someone to believe what you want them to believe. It doesn't happen. Here's another uh, Newsweek magazine, November 22nd, 2004. There was an article in there called Of Prayer and Payback. Notice what it says. The Moral Majority Coalition has been launched. The group's central premise is to utilize the momentum of the November 2 elections to maintain an evangelical revolution of voters who will continue to go to the polls and vote Christian. They're saying we need to get into the political arena if we're going to bring change in America. Listen to what this is saying. This is the Christian church saying we no longer have the power to change lives. If we're going to change America, we've got to get involved in politics and we've got to legislate our beliefs. That's what they're saying, right? Here's one from Time Magazine in 2005 titled Evangelicals into America. It says, What does Bush owe the religious right? They helped reelect the president, and Christian conservatives want payback. What's that saying? It's saying, Mr. President, we're Christians and we got you reelected, and now we want you to legislate our beliefs. 
We want payback, right? That's what that's saying. You ever heard of James Dobson? He was the president of Focus on the Family. This was back in, I think, 2005. Notice what it says. Dr. James Dobson, one of the most influential Christian leaders in our country, has stepped down from Focus on the Family to move into the political arena. Here we have Christians who should be leading people to surrender to Christ, and they're saying, our religion doesn't have the power to do it, We've got to get into the political arena if we're going to make a difference. I want you to notice what it said in that U.S. News article, 2005. It says, before the November 2004 election, James Dobson stepped down from the presidency of Focus on the Family. Dobson, for his part, is ready to play hardball, having already sent letters to 1.2 million supporters in which he threatens to challenge Democratic senators up for re-election in 2006 if they filibuster Bush's conservative judicial nominees. Here we see the church saying, if we're going to make changes in America, we've got to get involved in politics. Now, think about this. Think about what happened on September 11th in 2001. There probably isn't anyone here tonight who doesn't remember where they were on that day when those two airplanes hit the Twin Towers. And what happened in America... The American people came together, didn't they? There was this grassroots movement that said to the legislature, you've got to do something about this. And because of all of the people moving upon their legislatures, what did they do? They went to war, right? Now you have Democrats and Republicans, both sides of the aisle, coming together. You have people praying on the White House lawn. You have them praying at the Capitol building on the steps, something that you would never be able to do, but now they're doing this, and now they go to war because everyone's saying, we need to do something about this. And then what happened later? After they had time to think about it, they realized maybe we shouldn't have done that, right? And now you got two sides, one saying yes, one saying we shouldn't have done it. But remember what the Bible says, that this second beast is going to make an image to the first beast. And whose power does he exercise? Exercises the power of the first beast, right? Revelation 13, verse 12, and he exercises all the power of the first beast. That's papal Rome. Now let me just talk about how we got to where we're at today. On January 10th, 1984, President Reagan set up an ambassador to the Vatican. Now, let me ask you a question. Who knows the name of the ambassador to the Baptist church? There isn't one. How about uh, who's the ambassador to the Lutheran church? There isn't one. Presbyterian? There isn't one. But he set up an ambassador to the Holy See, the Vatican. Why? Because they have political power. 
And so that was January 10th, 1984. And we have the first ambassador to the Vatican. Now, this is something very interesting. Back in the 70s, there was a guy by the name of Malachi Martin who wrote a book called The Keys of This Blood. And by the way, Malachi Martin was a Jesuit priest. Notice what he said in that book. Willing or not, ready or not, we are all involved in an all-out, no-holds-barred, three-way global competition. I'm going to stop there for a moment. You go read that book, and I recommend it highly. This guy was a Jesuit priest. He was high up in the Catholic Church. He knows the purposes behind everything, and he spills the beans in that book. I think they tried to kill him because of it. But anyway, he's talking about this three-way competition. And he says the three-way competition is capitalism, communism, and Catholicism. That's what he said. This was back in the 70s, right? Three-way competition. Now, we know what capitalism is. That's the United States of America. We know what Catholicism is, right? That's the Catholic Church. And we know what communism is. That's the former Soviet Union, right? And many other nations that are allied with them. But notice what he says. Willing or not, ready or not, we are all involved in an all-out, no-holds-barred, three-way global competition. Most of us are not competitors. However, we are the stakes. For the competition is about who will establish the first one-world system of government that has ever existed in the society of nations. Here he says, this is the deception. This is what's going on behind the scenes. You have three major powers in the world that are trying to be the first government to set up a one world government. And who's ever in charge of this government, they're the top dog, right? In this one world government. That's where we're headed. If you've missed that, you have been sleeping, right? Because we are headed towards a one-world government. I want to read something to you from Time Magazine. And this article was called The Holy Alliance. And it talks about how Reagan and the Pope conspired to assist Poland's solidarity movement and hasten the demise of communism. Three-way competition, right? Capitalism, Catholicism, and communism, and now you have capitalism and Catholicism conspiring together to get rid of the other one. I want to read the article here. This is what it says. One of the earliest goals as president, Reagan says, was to recognize the Vatican as a state and make them an ally. This was one of the great secret alliances of all time. Reagan and the Pope agreed to undertake a clandestine campaign to hasten the dissolution of the communist empire. Step by reluctant step, the Soviets and the communist government of Poland bowed to the moral, economic, and political pressure imposed by the Pope and the President, and communism was dismantled. Now what do we have left? 
We had a three-way competition and now it's down to two. The beast and the false prophet. And they're in alliance together. That's what we see happening today. Notice this from Ecclesiastical Megalomania, a book written by John Robbins, page 187 and 195. John Robbins was a Ph.D. in political science. And notice what he says. What the Roman church state accomplished on a small scale during the Middle Ages is what it desires to achieve on a global scale in the coming millennium. That's what he's saying the purpose is behind this whole thing. The papacy wants to be in charge of that one world government just like it was in the Middle Ages. But notice what he goes on to say. The Roman church state in the 20th century, however, is an institution recovering from a mortal wound. If and when it regains its full power and authority, it will impose a regime more sinister than any the planet has ever seen. That's where we're heading. Now right now, the papacy is playing nice, right? Because they don't have the political power. But he's saying when they get it, look out. It's going to be worse than it ever was in the dark ages. You don't believe what they tell you to believe. You're a heretic. And you are going to be sought out and punished. Revelation 13 verse 12 says, The second beast causes the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. Here we see the United States of America in cahoots with the first beast and the United States is the one that's going to enforce the mark of the beast. It's going to be the one that holds everyone accountable to do what the beast says. And so here we have... Protestant America and they are going to cause all of the earth to worship the first beast. And how does that happen? Through legislation. That's exactly where we're heading. And we can see that evangelicals and Catholics over the last 20 years have been going miles to come closer together. This is out of the Associated Press, November 17, 2004. Notice what it says. The nation's Roman Catholic bishops voted Wednesday to join a new alliance that would be the broadest Christian group ever formed in the United States, linking America's evangelicals and Catholics in an ecumenical organization for the first time. Here we see what's happening. The papacy is trying to bring all of the Protestant churches back under its umbrella. Come back home. You're all just Catholics. Come on back and we'll all just be one big happy family. Right? That's what's going on right now in America. Now, I want to point something out to you. How many of you have ever heard of the Augsburg Confession? The Augsburg Confession was the Magna Carta of the Reformation. What happened when Luther defended his 95 Theses, and there were a lot of people at that time who saw that he was right. You have all of these people coming from all over different parts of the world, and they all came together in Augsburg, Germany, 
and they wrote the Augsburg Confession. This was a very first profession of faith for Protestants. And this was where they laid out all of the things that they didn't agree with from the apostate mother church. I want you to notice something in an article in 1999 from the Washington Post in a November 1st article. Listen to what they're talking about. And they're talking about the annulment of the Augsburg Confession. It says that the annulment of the Augsburg Confession took place in Augsburg, Germany on October 31st of 1999. The reason they did it on August 31st was that was the anniversary of Luther nailing his 95 Theses to the wall, to the church door in Wittenberg. And so they've gathered together and they're coming to annul the Augsburg Confession. Notice what it says. Exactly 482 years after the Augsburg Confession, today the heirs of that acrimony, and acrimony is just a sharp, bitter dispute, today the heirs of that acrimony and fracture, the leaders of the modern Lutheran and Roman Catholic churches, signed a document that officially settles the central argument about the nature of faith that Luther provoked. The agreement declares, in effect, that it was all just a misunderstanding. Now friends, it's important when you have a misunderstanding that you come together and you make things right. Would you agree with that? But I doubt very much that the 50 million people who were killed for their faith would agree that it was a simple misunderstanding. It's far more than that. But you can see how things are all starting to come together. That was in 1999. Here's a Christian magazine, Christian Century, in May 17, 2005 article. Notice what it says. Do Protestants need the papacy? At one point in history, to be a Protestant was explicitly or tacitly to will an end to the papacy. I'm going to pause there for a moment, and I would say that's exactly true. That's a true statement. But he goes on. I think many Protestants can now confess that was a mistaken view. Both the church and the world would sorely lack a witness if there was no papacy. If being a Protestant means willing the end of the papacy, then I find myself no longer capable of willing such an act. You see here how things are starting to come together. It's all coming back under one umbrella. And who do you think is going to be in charge of that one world government? Here's something from Time Magazine, March 21, 2005. It's uh, an article in here called Hail Mary. And I don't know if you can read the, the subtitle here. It says, Catholics have long revered her, but now Protestants are finding their own reasons to celebrate the mother of Jesus. But notice what it says in that article. This is the Reformation in reverse. It's simply profoundly unbiblical and it leads to the worst excesses of Marian devotion. 
Here we see all of these different Christian faiths all saying, we need to find some value in Mary. Right? And they're all trying to just come together and play nice. And we can all just agree to disagree when it comes to our theology. But I want to tell you something. The Catholic Church has never and will never change. And so... All of these different Christian faiths are trying to play nice and trying to bring unity. And unity can certainly be a good thing. But only if we're united in the truth. Amen? Notice what the Bible says is going to happen at the end. Revelation 13.13 He performs great signs so that He even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. Now, it would not surprise me that the devil would do that. Because it's the devil who's behind the false prophet and behind the beast, right? But I think it could be talking about physical fire, but it may more likely be talking about something spiritual. Because in the Bible, fire is symbolic of the Holy Spirit, isn't it? You remember on the day of Pentecost, they had tongues of fire over their heads, right? That's the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So what we may be seeing here is a false revival that goes on. Remember what we read in one of our previous meetings? These are demons performing signs. Now we have all of these miracles that are happening and people are saying, God is working. We need to get back to God. You see how there could be a false revival that comes up in America. And of course, if there's a false revival, that means there's also a true revival, right? Because the devil is always trying to counterfeit. And what we are trying to bring about is a true revival. Come back to godliness. Come back to worshiping the Creator and keeping His commandments, right? That's where God is leading us back. And that's what we're trying to bring about. A religious revival here in America. But if there's a genuine, there's also going to be a false revival. And so we need to base our faith not on tradition, not on the teachings of men, but on the Word of God. Amen? Remember, how has it been working? A little bit of error mixed in with truth over thousands of years, and pretty soon error is being taught as truth or no one questions it. Revelation 13.14 says, And He deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which He was granted to do in the sight of the beast. I want you to notice this guy, Father Stefano Gobi. He's a guy who believes he has direct communications with Mary and then he shares that communication with the priests. Notice what he says. A chastisement worse than the flood is about to come upon this poor and perverted humanity. Fire will descend from heaven and this will be the sign that the justice of God has now fixed the hour of His great manifestation. You see what he's saying there? He's saying that fire that comes down out of heaven is from God. But what did we just read? It's the false prophet, the second beast that calls down fire, right? And so here we have this guy misleading millions of people saying that this is coming from God, but we know the Word of God says it doesn't. The Bible says that the deadly wound is going to be healed and the whole world 
is going to marvel after the beast. You see, it's not just simply religious benefits that people are looking for from the Pope. They're also looking for a political benefit as well. I want to show you how much the papacy is gaining in political power. You remember Pope John Paul II? In 2005, at his funeral, there were five kings, four queens, and at least 70 presidents and prime ministers that attended Pope John Paul II's funeral. More than a 100 nations were represented. Prince Charles of Great Britain postponed his wedding to attend. You think that the Pope had some political power there? I want you to notice the leaders of the world bowing down to the Pope. It goes on to say this was the first time in U.S. history that a sitting president ever attended a papal funeral. Some analysts consider it the largest gathering ever of world leaders. Now, I want you to notice something in how far we've come in history. You go back 60 years to 1960, and we had a Catholic president in this country. Do you know who it was? That's right, John F. Kennedy. He was Catholic. And because he was Catholic, there was a lot of pressure put on him by Protestant America because people were questioning whether or not being Catholic he was going to take his marching orders from the Pope. And so it was certainly a huge issue in that political campaign. But I want you to notice what Kennedy said in a speech to the Houston Ministerial Association held at the Rice Hotel on September 12, 1960. Notice what Kennedy said. He said, I believe in an America where the separation of church and state is absolute, where no Catholic prelate would tell the president, should he be Catholic, how to act, and no Protestant minister would tell his parishioners for whom to vote where no church or church school is granted any public funds or political preference, and where no man is denied public office merely because his religion differs from the president who might appoint him or the people who might elect him. I believe in an America that is officially neither Catholic, Protestant, nor Jewish, where no public official either requests or accepts instructions on public policy from the Pope, the National Council of Churches, or any other ecclesiastical source where no religious body seeks to impose its will directly or indirectly upon the general populace or the public acts of its officials and where religious liberty is so indivisible that an act against one church is treated as an act against all. Wow! That was from our Catholic president, right? Now, certainly that was an issue in that campaign, and he may have had some very political reasons for saying what he did. But I believe what he said. I believe that he's absolutely right. That was 60 years ago. But friends, things are changing here in America. I want you to notice something that was in the Washington Post, April 16, 2001. It was an article called Bush Aims to Strengthen the Catholic Base. Notice what it says. 
1960, John Kennedy went from Washington down to Texas to assure Protestant preachers that he would not obey the Pope. In 2001, George Bush came from Texas up to Washington to assure a group of Catholic bishops that he would. That's where we're heading, friends. That's where we're going in this country. And I think that there are clear signs that are showing us where we're heading. This image of the beast has already begun to be set up. And all it's going to take is another event like September 11th where people were willing to give up their freedom for a sense of security. Right? All it takes is just some major event. I believe that we're coming to a time when we are going to have to make a decision in this country. Now please don't take this message the wrong way. I love this country. I spent nearly 23 years in the military protecting the freedoms that we so jealously guard. But there's going to come a time when you're going to have to make a decision where you're going to believe the law of the land and you're going to follow that or are you going to follow the law of God? That's where we are heading. God is going to be enforced in this country, but it's not going to be the God that we're looking for. The nation is going to tear down that separation between church and state and it's going to be a certain brand of religion and if you don't believe it and you don't follow it, you're going to be a heretic and you're not going to be able to buy or sell. And we are heading there quickly. And I like what Joshua said, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Amen? And so we have seen the, the truth from Scripture. And I've showed you a lot of things that have been happening in the last 20 years. But let me show you a couple of more just within the last four. In 2015, Pope Francis sent out his encyclical letter called Laudato Si, which is on the care of our common home. And in that encyclical letter, and you can go online and you can see the whole thing, you can read it for yourself. In that letter, he lays out an argument for a new partnership between science and religion, between government and religion, to combat this human-driven global warming problem. And do you know what his solution was? We all need to have a common day where we worship God and we rest and we shut down all of the factories to protect the environment and we let it rest. And on what day do you suppose he's suggesting we do that on? Sunday. That's right. That was in 2015. Two years ago, September 24th in 2017, the Pope came and addressed our Congress in session. I want to read two quotes to you from the statements that he made in that session. The first one, he said, 
your own responsibility as members of Congress is to enable this country by your legislative activity to grow as a nation. That sounds nice, doesn't it? But if you know what he's trying to get to, you realize that what he's really saying is that you need to come together and you need to legislate what people should do and believe. The next one says this, Politics is instead an expression of our compelling need to live as one. In order to build as one the greatest common good, that of a community which sacrifices particular interests in order to share in justice and peace its goods, its interests, its social life. What's he saying there? He's saying you need to set up legislation for the common good and people need to set aside their own particular views or beliefs so that we can all come together as one a one world government. That's what he said. And he addressed our Congress two years ago. Now here's my last point. On September 12th, that was 32 days ago, the Vatican produced a YouTube video of the Pope reading a statement where he issued an international news release. I don't know if you're aware of this or not. Just 32 days ago. And in that five-minute message that he gave, he is calling all world leaders to come together on May 14th of 2020. That's just seven months from now. He's calling all world leaders to come together to Rome, to the Vatican, I believe, to make a pact. He calls it a global pact to re-educate the youth of the world regarding, among other things, how to save the planet. He references in that five-minute video his 2015 encyclical letter on climate change And he addresses the fact that we need to all come together and have a corporate day of rest on Sunday. Friends, that's where we are heading. And I have a lot of people say to me, Pastor, what are you looking for? What are you looking at? I'll tell you what I'm looking for. I'm looking to see what comes out of this meeting in seven months from now. Because it could be just another step in the progress that we're making towards a one-world government. It could be just another cog in the wheel. Or it could be that we bring all these world leaders together and they make a global agreement. And I'm just speculating, but I'm going to guess that it involves ten countries. I'm just speculating. And we can see that in Scripture why. But here's the thing. The Lord has made a little sanctuary here in this Jesus on Prophecy series. And this is holy ground. And He is revealing the truth to us. He's showing us the deception that's going on in the world. He shows us where we're heading. We've seen all of these 
not all of them, many of these steps that are leading us to this one world government, we have an alliance between the first and the second beast of Revelation 13, and they are playing it out step by step. And we have a choice to make. Are we going to worship God in the way that He asks us to? Are we going to come together on the day that He made holy? Or are we going to be involved in false worship on the counterfeit holy day? That's the decision that we have to make. And that's a decision that every single person has to make for themselves. I've tried to lay it out for you the best I can. I've tried to make it as clear for you as I can. And now the decision is yours. And I pray that you will choose wisely. And you are going to have to make a stand at some point. But let me tell you this. Those three Hebrew boys that made that stand on the plains of Dura and did not bow down to the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, I promise you they did not make that decision when they got there. They had already made that decision before they went so that God could strengthen them to stand when everybody else was bowing down. And so if you want to make that stand, I would recommend you do it now. You want to stand for Jesus? Stand up. Lord, I'm making this stand for You. If that's You, make a stand. Don't do it because everybody else is doing it. Don't do it because I think You should. Do it because You've seen the truth and You're taking a stand for Jesus. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, thank You for the Holy Spirit. Thank You for the ministering angels who have made this topic so clear to us tonight. And Lord, You know every heart here. I pray for everyone that has made that decision to stand for You. And Lord, our prayer is that You will give us the strength to go forward from here. To stand for the truth. To keep Your Sabbath holy as You've asked us to to keep all of Your commandments, not because we're trying to earn our way into heaven, but simply because we love You and we love the truth and we are showing You through our actions that we believe You and we love You. And Lord, we pray that You would bring us through these things that are happening. Help us to be separate from this deception that's going on. Help us not to be fooled by the devil. But Lord, help us to have the strength and the power to stand even if it costs us everything. We pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen.